Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. Joining me today is Alfredo Montefarhelu, the head of our China Center for Economics and Business at the Conference Board. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss China's current geopolitical and economic objectives and the country's relationship with the West and much more. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series. Welcome, Alfredo. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, Alfredo, you're in Beijing. You've lived there for a long time and you've worked. Just give us a brief background um, you know, on your experiences in China. Well, um, I've been in China for almost uh, 12 years. I'm originally from Mexico. In terms of my education, I got my bachelor's in political science and international relations from the Central Investigación y Docencia Económicas. Now you can see that I speak Spanish. Um, And my master's from uh, Georgetown University, that's the Master of Science in Foreign Service. Um, After I obtained my master's, uh, I came uh, to China. And previously, actually, I have been in China already, but I came to China in 2013 and I've been working in helping uh, foreign multinationals navigate the Chinese market, understand the impact of policies of economic developments and geopolitics on their operations, and also in helping Chinese multinationals uh, capture opportunities overseas and basically go out to the foreign market. Yeah, and so for our listeners who are in the West, all of their information about China is delivered through a filter that is Western, right? And so you are sitting there in China and you read the newspapers in the Chinese language newspapers, you have interacted with the government for, as you said, over a decade. Um, and so you have a, you know, a bit of a point of view about what's China's view of China and China's view of the West. Let's just start though with a, a little bit of history. Cause I, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand the, the ancient history, the long history of China, because it does color their perspective on China's current interaction with the world, right? It is true. It is true, Steve. Uh, I mean, China is, uh, unlike other countries, a civilization in itself that is um, over a thousand years old, right? So if you look at countries such as Mexico, where I'm from, the nation state Mexico only became established after it was colonized by Spain, and then we gained independence. So uh, as, as a nation, really, China has a lot of history. Of course, I mean, we're talking about uh, a lot of empires in China, and then the reform era, and then how it, part of China were colonized by some, by some countries. But really, what when we look at China right now, when we look at China right now, we're talking about the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party, right? And so if we are trying to assess why China looks at the world as it looks it now, we really need to go back to the reform and opening era um, initiated by Deng Xiaoping after the tumultuous uh, government uh, by Mao Zedong, right? And this was an era where China opened to the world and try to leverage the comparative advantages of being more integrated to the world to the benefit of its development. And so what we have seen right now is a transition to a stronger China that is more willing to take a stance in global affairs to defend its interests and to um, have its say in how the global world order will 
impact countries and their and bilateral relations. And I, I was actually looking at how to um, you know, make an interpretation of the shift. And there is before a 24 character strategy, which was advanced by Deng Xiaoping. And this 24 character strategy in English uh, is translated as observe calmly, secure our position, cope with the first calmly, hide our capacities and bide our time, be good at maintaining a low profile and never claim leadership. And President Xi Jinping has modified this 24 character strategy to a new one uh, in the recently conclu concluded National uh, People's Congress. But I believe this was already happening at the, of course, during his administration uh, several years uh, ago. And so the new, the new, the new 24 character strategy is with risks and challenges increasing, be calm, keep determined, seek progress and stability, be proactive and achieve things, unite under the banner of the party, of course, and there to fight. So there you have a shift to a more proactive strategy, to a more willingness to defend your its interests in the um, global scene. Yeah, and this and this is you know against the backdrop of nineteen. 49 and everything that you've talked about that led us to today but but they also look at themselves as one of the most ancient societies on earth and the, you know one of the longest standing countries a proud history you know inventions of of many things that have led to the modern era and so forth and so you know when they look to the west um you know they look at it more as an upstart and you know they they look at it also as um in the west not giving them the respect that they deserve in the world and and you can see this in how they how they react to a lot of things and hence the 24 character you know current mantra from from the government right so I think, uh, of course, given how rich Chinese history is, uh, you know, Chinese people feel very proud about it. And we think about how many inventions China has contributed to the world. Then it's no it's no wonder that this uh, that that they feel so proud about the history. Now, if we look at how China was before uh, when we had uh, the emperors, China was actually the center of its own world. Right. You have in the characters Zhongguo. Zhong is actually the center. Right, and when you talk about like uh, the foreign world is Kauai, what's outside the center, right? Um, but you see, um, at that point, uh, China was of course the center. They received tributes from many other uh, nations, many other countries, and uh, they considered that uh, their emperor was appointed by heaven, right? And everyone else, even uh, the West, uh, actually were were actually uh, below that emperor. Now, is China trying to get back to that? That's a very interesting question because even if we consider that they are very proud about that history, when you had the establishment of the People's Republic of China, that's kind of like breaking with the past, right? With a past that was seen as too weak to face the challenges of Western powers. You got to understand that when China was colonized by Western powers, it was seen as a failure of the dynasties of the empire to prevent this from happening. They were seen as weak. And so that in part drove the uh, revolution that led to the establishment of the PRC. Yeah, and, but this, this, this history is, is, is just so fascinating, Alfredo, because I, 
you know, I'm 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 afraid in the West they don't teach a lot of of Chinese history, but but if you listen to this and if you listen to them thinking of themselves as the center, and I suppose that's true of any nation, you know, wherever you sit is the center, I guess, of your own universe. But but it, but it's but it's a long. They want respect from from the West, and so when you look at what's going on today, so much of it can be explained by just simply China trying to find that level of respect from the rest of the world. And, and also to get back to what they believe was, you, you know, their rightful place. And and so hence, here we are today. And, you know, you can see why they have a view that the, the region, it's South China Sea, you know, the, the Asian region, which is around the center, um, is so important to them. And, and, that, and that intruders are, you know, really not all that welcome. Well, I mean... There is, you could make that interpretation, but you could also say the same of other countries that have become big regional powers, such as Brazil and Turkey, right? They all have regional interests. They all want to uh, avoid other powers from interfering with these interests. So it's not necessarily that China wants to go back uh, and become the center of the world as the empire of, of, of China before, as the emperor of China understood it. It's more that they have been amongst the developing nations, amongst the emerging nations, they have been the one very successful country in becoming powerful economically, militarily, and politically in such a short frame of time. In 70 years, uh, they have accomplished what took the United Kingdom over the, the best part of 200 years, right? And so right now, that, of course, brews confidence. And looking at their history, of course, they see what Western powers did to them when they colonized China, when they, for example, uh, forced China's hands to give them some uh, parts of their land, like Hong Kong, for instance, and they don't want to let that happen again. So they are reacting against that history. And of course, they feel proud about what they have achieved. And they see themselves as, as having not only perhaps the right, but also the power to be able to defend those interests. Yeah. So okay, so then you go back to the West and and you know you look at things and and the fear is that China is is allying with Russia against the West. I mean that's sort of the Western view, and maybe that they're gearing up for an invasion of Taiwan. You know with the, the bases, you know they're spying on nations, they're stealing IP. You know yada yada yada. I mean there's a lot of stuff that the West is now looking at. But what is China's view of all of that? What are their objectives? Let me first talk about for China, Russia, in an environment where Western economies, which are the largest economies in the world, except for China and India, for instance, but the most developed ones, in an environment where they have grown increasingly antagonistic to China and to the Communist Party, there are just no incentives for China to deny its partners like Russia. Actually, on the contrary, this environment is pushing China and Russia closer. So that, that's, that's how also they see this, right? In, in, in looking at this geopolitical environment from their perspective, uh, why would they deny this partnership? Why would they uh, do this while at the same time Western governments are taking actions against them? So in the eyes of the Chinese authorities, um, this is justified. This is not to say that they want to break with the global order. I don't believe they want or that they want to uh, have a conflict, an armed conflict. It's not in their benefit to have that. Now, talking about Taiwan, there is no question that reunification with Taiwan is one of their main goals. 
there have been uh, some reports about what this means in reality and whether the Chinese military is preparing for doing that in the next five years or in the next 10 years. I think it's not clear whether China is really going to go, go ahead and do this and have a war over Taiwan because it is just, again, not in their best interest to do so. From a military perspective, I don't think uh, it's, I think that what happened in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine shows that whatever calculations the Chinese military had with respect to what it would look like if they invaded Taiwan, well, those calculations changed. Economically, I think that what the Western businesses have done to boycott the Russian economy also shows uh, some of the consequences that would fall on China if they were to do this, right? I, I think, uh, you know, from, from their perspective, from the China perspective, what they're doing right now, for example, in proposing, the, in proposing this peace proposal between Russia and Ukraine, in, in trying to reunify with Taiwan, they're just doing what's best in their own interest, geopolitically speaking, as a power that is able to defend its interests. And, that, and that's it. I mean, pragmatically speaking, realistically speaking, this is no different from what other big powers would do. Yeah. Well, and, you know, China takes a long view on everything. They do 100-year plans where everybody else is trying to figure out what to do next month. And pretty much they execute them. So, you, you know, if you look at the long view, and they are very good students of history. So as you look at the, as you look at history, these regional wars, or even, you know, the, you know, the, the, the larger world conflicts, I mean, no, nobody wins in any of these. And, you know, you can get bogged down. China China realizes that, and they, and they don't want to be part of that as well. However, you know, there is this, there still is this tension with the West. And so then, you know, my question is, what is China's view of the West? So they're sitting there, um, you know, trying to interpret, you know, all of these Western nations who kind of act uh, together and similarly, but but they really are different. You know, so just kind of run us through how they view the West. Well, of course, um, I think that they realize that each Western country is different. It has its own characteristics uh, in terms of culture, in terms of society, in terms of the economy, and in terms of the political system. There's no, there's just no question about it. Um, how they see the U.S., uh, they see it as a hegemon that it's trying to uh, contain them and contain their rise. That's they they have declared as, as much. How they see the European countries, they see them as um, countries that in one way or another have been uh, unable to to do uh, or to pursue strategic autonomy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, their, relation, their relationship with the world uh, and vis-a-vis -vis what the U.S. is doing, right? So basically following uh, the U.S.'s lead uh, with NATO and with other policies. So I think the question is, are, are they seeing the West as a one block that is trying to contain China's rise? No, they are not. I mean, they're more they're more subtle about this. Uh, they're more sophisticated. And uh, what they're really what, what the real concern is what the US will do next to contain them in areas such as technology, in areas such as military, in areas such as trying to rally uh, all the allies to present a common a common front against China. Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, as you look at it sitting in Beijing, what areas do you see the West and China having agreement? Right. So I think that the clearest area is, um, you know, environmental transition. 
the green transition, uh, environmental sustainability, uh, addressing climate risks, uh, because that's the one area where I think, I mean, every country is in agreement that if we don't do something now, we're going to have a very, very, very uh, dangerous uh, risk in the future of things going really wrong with the world. Other areas that I think they're in agreement, but they don't agree on how to go about it, is the, the necessity to reform global institutions. I think that's an agreement. Everyone is trying to reform global institutions. You name it, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, the UN, WTO, World Bank, IMF, all of them want to reform them. How they want to reform them, that's a different question. Because uh, China, of course, is looking for its own interest, and the US is looking for its own interest, and Europeans are looking for their own interests, right? So um, then and, and, and I, I guess another area of agreement is alleviation of poverty. Uh, that's one of the big uh, slogans of China. And another one is uh, healthcare uh, in terms of medicine, uh, of providing medicines to the to the less fortunate in, in the world. And uh, that those would be the key areas of agreement, I would say. Okay, so flip it around and, and where are the key areas of disagreement between China and the West? I think one of the biggest areas of disagreement is uh, the use of technology, right? Dual use technologies, how China perceives how technologies should be used. Um, and of course, the U.S. does not agree with this type of uh, conception. Europeans also don't agree with this. Another area of disagreement is uh, how China subsidizes some of its overseas investments, which of course uh, is not in alignment with uh, the market economies in uh, Western nations. Another area of disagreement would be how China considers, let's call it, its surrounding areas as part of its own area of hegemony, right? Um, and of course, here we're talking about, uh, you know, there is a lot of territorial disputes in the South China Sea. And it's not only China that is claiming these islands, it's everyone in, in, in South China Sea is claiming these islands. Um, but these are so important because this is a region where over half of trade passes through, right? So whoever controls these waters, is going to be in a very significant strategic position over everyone else. Uh, that's why it's so significant. And of course, that's why the US and uh, European powers are not happy with having one single power controlling these waters. Yeah. And, and you know, to some extent, you, you know, you hear it in, in you know, not directly from President Xi, but from, you know, many of the ministers who say, you know, look, we don't have the Chinese Navy parked in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and yet you have the U.S. Navy sitting in the South China Sea and it and it feels threatening. So, you know, this, this is why I think it's important to look at the point of view from from both directions in order to understand, you know, why people are doing and why nations are doing what they're doing. Now, you talked about China's influence outside of China. And one of the key ways that they that they have do, been doing that for some time now, and you and I have talked about this in previous podcasts is the China is China's Belt and Road Initiative. And now we have, as you have, uh, as you introduced the 2.0 uh, initiative, much of this is to secure natural resources uh, around the world, uh, you know, initially in Africa, but now increasingly in South America, you know, talk about their objectives here. Is it resources only, but, or is it also geopolitical or other, are there other uh, objectives? I mean, I think the initiative in itself has lowered its profile, 
It has come back this year, though. I mean, we just heard from the government that there will be the next Belt and Road International Cooperation Forum this year. So it's coming back, but it's still much more lower profile than it was before, right? Much more lower profile. In terms of which investments are being undertaken under this initiative, of course, you have many of them targeting the acquisition of uh, raw materials of commodities that are uh, important for emerging technologies. You're talking about cobalt, you're talking about copper, but you also have other acquisitions more on the infrastructure infrastructure side, the building of railroads, uh, of course, the acquisition of existing ports, for example, all of them which are going to help at some point also drive trade from China with these countries. Now, on, on, on the geopolitical side, as, as I said last time uh, in our uh, previous podcast on BRI 2.0, Steve, it would be naive to think that China has no geopolitical ambitions as, it's, as, as it undertakes this initiative, right? It, it would be naive to think that it doesn't have any ambitions as it would have been naive to think that China didn't have any, uh, that the U.S. didn't have any ambitions with the Marshall Plan. I mean, it's the same thing. These types of initiatives, in a way, they have the economic uh, you know, drivers, but there is also a geopolitical driver. And that's how we need to understand them. Yeah. And and, and they're both intertwined and, and you know, you can't you can't uh, divorce one from the other. Now, you, you look at China and, you know, the size of the nation, population, et cetera. Um, um, they are a huge force. I mean, they are the largest. They have the largest population of any country in the world. India is close behind, but but they're the largest. They have a huge land mass. They they are not the largest land mass nation, but they are a huge land mass, and and certainly you know huge shoreline and so forth. They've got great resources, um, intellectual resources, natural resources. And so, you know, they're sitting here as the number two economy at the world in the world, and it's just inevitable that as they go from, and they and their GDP per capita rises, it's inevitable that with that many people, 1.4 billion people, versus, for instance, the U.S. with 325 million people, it's inevitable that they will be number one in 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 economic terms in the world. When do you predict this will occur? But then more importantly, what are the ramifications? I mean, do you just keep going and it doesn't matter? Or do they leverage that in a different way than they are today? That's, that, that is a very interesting question, Steve, because there is a certainty here. And that is that China will become the number one economy in the world. That's a certainty. And according to some forecasts, this will happen in 2030, 2031, 2032, if you if you take into account the impact of COVID, for example. That said, if we're talking about GDP per capita, China is still far below every other advanced economy. So we also need to consider that. But there is but the certain it's a certainty that China is going to become the largest economy in the world. Now, what it's uncertain is what are the ramifications. But when we think about when these ramifications will happen, let's go back then to the question of whether China, after it becomes the largest economy, will stop putting or emphasis or focusing on the domestic economy. Because again, they're worried about GDP per capita levels, about common prosperity. So that's that's one thing. Now, if we assume that China is able to push forward common prosperity, 
and to have a reasonably high GDP per capita, will China behave like a hegemon and as a hegemon try to export its model to other countries or try to break up the international system and uh, just implement its own ideas or its own view of how the, about how the world should be ruled? And I think that China actually likes global institutions because it has brought order, it brings stability to the system, and what it wants is to reform them, of course, in a way that reflects its own interests and its own uh, pursuit of uh, of principles. And we have heard as much in terms of, for example, you, uh, uh, the China and Russia, President Putin and President Xi Jinping just met, and they released actually uh, a communique where they defend the UN uh, system, of course, Kind of funny how they defend it, uh, or what the communique says, but uh, about about defending the UN institutions. But you know, they. St- I mean, China. I think it still likes to have that system because it brings stability, it brings order, and I think that when you think about why China's model of government, or actually China as a hegemon, is attractive for other countries. It's precisely because there is nothing there is nothing as China exceptionalism, for example, which is one of the main criticisms from countries in Africa, countries in Latin America vis-a-vis the US. It's about the US exceptionalism and so on and so forth. So so far China is not doing this. So far China is not doing this, which then of course leads to the uh, potential of rather than having another hegemon, rather than having that, is actually having China, yes, as a global power, but a global power that is tolerant of other regional powers with their own sphere of influence and with their own interests. Yeah, and, and you know, your point is that they like to work through institutions. So, it, you know, it it you know, you could imagine that maybe they would leverage the UN more than. You know, than in the past as as a leader or or the World Trade Organization, which uh, that's a whole separate issue. But I, I guess that the, the you know the last question here as we wrap up is okay as they become number one within the next decade, almost certainly as you say, is the West in any you know further danger than let's say they are today? I mean, is, does this create a dangerous situation? Does it does it does it does China then say we now have power to? you know, to, to launch, you know, kinetic, kinetic activity against the West, or, you know, so where does it go? From an international, you know, international relations, a realist perspective, um, no. And the simple reason is that not only China has nuclear weapons. And so that deterrence just puts a stop on any kind of like uh, ambition to control the world as they see fit. Simple as that. From an influential perspective, yeah, China will have then more influence on other countries. But again, China being the largest economy doesn't mean that China has the strongest GDP per capita or the strongest technologies. Uh, and this is something that Western economies, even though China will be the largest economy, Western economies will still have an advantage over China. So it's not automatic that China will be able to dictate how the world has to function. So it's not going to be an automatic there. And I think that as China continues growing and, again, becomes number one economy in the world, uh, Western nations, what what would be dangerous is to see this transition 
into the largest economy as an existential threat to them. Because if they see this as an existential threat, then they're themselves going to take actions that are going to escalate the potential of a conflict between China and them. And so that is the risk. It is not that China itself is going to present a risk, but the, the, the belief that China rising is an existential risk to the West, that's what creates the risk. Well, because the West takes action to defend or, or to, to deter that. And you know maybe that's because they've seen it happen so many times, but not from China. So this is uh, you know this is the case, and this is why Alfredo, it's so important for people to take a view as China views itself and as China views others, because it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily look like the the same thing that the West views, you know, China and others through the same lens, and and hence the importance of this conversation today. Indeed, Steve, and I think that uh, this is the one thing that we need to continue having. I mean, the ability to discuss, to bridge these understanding gaps, to address miscommunication. And this is something that the world is lacking right now. But I hope that we can address that lack. And if not, then I myself personally things are not going to improve if we don't have communication. So... Uh, very thankful to have been invited today to provide my thoughts on this. Yeah, great uh, and great comments, Alfredo. It's very helpful to listen to, you know, the views from China. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for listening into CEO Perspectives. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with your geopolitical friends around the world. I know they're going to want to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this podcast has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.